Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you Last week, we um, started looking at the, the other characters uh, that played a part in the crucifixion and ultimately leading up to the resurrection of Christ. Um, and like we said last week, it's, it's quite possible to uh, just think that there, there were not others who played a part in what was the greatest weekend uh, for us as Christians, the greatest weekend of our lives. Um, but we, on closer study, we realized that there were many others who played parts. And because God is clearly a God of purpose, um, these, these different characters uh, were part of the journey because their, their lives, their contributions uh, tell us so many things that God would like us to understand, to know um, as we worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So last week we talked about the man who carried Jesus' cross, Simon uh, of Cyrene, the African man who was given that responsibility without asking, chosen to carry Jesus' cross for him up to Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. Today, we want to look at um, two men, notorious men, who played a part in the story the, 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 that, that we've, we've read over and over again about the crucifixion of Christ. And if you want a title for today's message, um, the title, What Kind of Messiah Are You?, uh, is the one we have chosen. So, Father, please bless your word. Uh, let, it, let it challenge us. Let it illuminate our minds. Let it, let it lift burdens, break yokes. Let it, let it put us in a stronger place in our faith, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. What kind of Messiah are you? The four Gospels record the accounts of two thieves, two robbers, who were crucified with Jesus. Sometimes we forget that there were actually three crosses on Golgotha. Um, there was the cross that is central to our faith and our life on which our Savior, Jesus Christ, was hanged. But on either side of him were two other crosses. And on those crosses, two criminals, two thieves, were crucified along with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Crucifixion was one of the worst forms of execution um, in Roman times. It was reserved for, for criminals and, 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 and violent people, people who the Roman Empire wanted to use as an example to say to people, if you do this, these kind of things, this is how you are going to die. And these thieves were just not ordinary thieves. They were not bugglers. These were hardened criminals. These were violent men. I can only imagine what they had done. The number of 
homes they had destroyed, people they had killed, uh, the, the way they had brought sorrow and sadness to so many lives and so many families. That was their trade. They were the worst. Um, Luke's uh, account, which we will read, uh, the, the, the translation from Greek uh, to English describes them as evildoers. These were very evil men. And all the gospel accounts record uh, the story of these two robbers. But Luke's gospel is the only one that records the conversation that took place between them and Jesus as they were hanging on the cross. If you go with me to Luke, the 23rd chapter... I'll read from verses 32 to 43. Uh, Two criminals were led away with Jesus, and all three were to be executed together. When they came to the place that is known as the skull, the, the guards crucified Jesus, nailing him on the center cross between the two criminals. While they were nailing Jesus to the cross, he prayed over and over, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. The soldiers, after they crucified him, gambled over his clothing. A great crowd gathered to watch what was happening. The religious leader sneered at Jesus and mocked him, saying, Look at this man. What kind of chosen Messiah is this? He pretended to save others, but he can't even save himself. This is the Passion Translation. The soldiers joined in the mockery by offering Jesus a drink of vinegar. Over Jesus' head on the cross was written an inscription in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic. This man is the king of all the Jews. And all the soldiers laughed and scoffed at him, saying, Hey, if you are the king of Jews, why don't you save yourself? One of the criminals hanging on the cross next to Jesus kept ridiculing him, saying, What kind of Messiah are you? And that's where we borrow the title for our message. What kind? The the criminal ridiculed him, mocked him, snared at him. What kind of Messiah are you, he said. Save yourself and save us from this death. The criminal hanging on the other cross rebuked the man, saying, Don't you fear God? You are about to die. We deserve to be condemned, for we are just being repaid for what we've done. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. Then he said, I beg of you, my Lord Jesus, show me grace and take me with you into your everlasting kingdom. Jesus responded, I promise you, this very day you will enter paradise with me. What do we learn uh, from this account of these two robbers who were crucified with Jesus. A number of things. Let's see how quickly we can go through them. I'd, I'd like to ask if, if you move with me with some speed um, because time is not on our side. The first thing that strikes you or struck me is how this account goes once more to prove the authenticity of the Word of God and the Bible. It goes on to prove that God's word is settled. 700 years before, the prophet had prophesied that what was happening would happen. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah the 53rd chapter and the 12th verse, and I read this from the Amplified Classic. As he prophesies what is going to happen 700 years later, and it's easy for us to 
skip through the pages in a matter of hours or days and not understand the significance of prophecy that was given hundreds of years before and that played out itself in such an accurate manner to confirm that the word of God is authentic. Isaiah 53 verse 12, as he prophesied with the Spirit of God upon him, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great kings and rulers, and he shall divide the spoil with the mighty, because he poured out his life unto death. You know, some of the people must have wondered, what is the prophet saying? What is he talking about? Who is dying? And he let himself be regarded as a criminal and be numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore and took away the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors, the rebellious. Exactly what happened. Numbered with the transgressors, with the worst of the transgressors. Praying for the sins of the transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Taking away the sins of many. Played out right before the eyes of the witnesses and written in the Bible so that we also can can, can be encouraged by the authenticity of the word of God. The psalmist says in Psalms 119 verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. I love the Passion Translation, how, uh, the way it puts that scripture. It says, standing firm in the heavens and fastened to eternity is the word of God. If God says it, you can go to rest. God is not a man that he should lie. He's not the son of man that he should change his mind. The Bible says, has he said it and will he not do it? May our attitude become the attitude of the psalmist. In Psalms 119 verse 92, he says, Because your words are my deepest delight, I didn't give up when all else was lost. When it looked like there was no hope, when it looked like it was over, when it looks like all is lost, when all is said and done and the cards are stacked against you, when the word of God has been your deepest delight, there is hope even when everything says there is no hope. Can someone say amen to that? The second thing that we glean from this story is how low Jesus went to lift us up. He literally descended into the pits. The story is told so that it can reflect on our own lives. Because sometimes the enemy tries to tell you that it is too bad. It is so terrible. It has crossed a line. And constantly he's reminding us trying to bring condemnation on us for what we have done. But then the Bible says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus shows us that. He comes as low as is possible. The shame, the indignity of being crucified with common criminals. The picture was so graphic of him identifying with the sin of the sinners. 
And so you and I can say to whatever voice that speaks to us and tells us that the blood cannot wash away that, those sins because they are so bad. We can say to them, there's nothing the blood cannot wash away. It was abominable, yes, but the blood is able to wash away the abomination. It was terrible, yes. These, these men had done things that were, that were, that we, we can't even speak about. They had, you can only imagine what they had done. But Jesus went to them. Some would have called these men the scum of the earth. But Jesus, in dying with, the, with these two men, in between them was sending a message to us that there is no one who is, who is such scum that he, he hasn't died for them. There is nothing we've done that he hasn't paid a price for. There is no sin we have committed that the blood of Jesus has not made an atonement for. Can someone say amen to that? The third thing that strikes us from this story is how a proud, arrogant, and hardened heart will not receive Jesus as Savior. In verse 39 of that scripture, the Bible says, One of the criminals hanging on the cross next to Jesus kept ridiculing him, saying, What kind of Messiah are you? Save yourself and save us from this death. The arrogance of that man. The arrogance that is portrayed graphically when put against his circumstances. Nails in his hands. Nails in his feet. Held up by the cross. And yet, the arrogance still spews out of his mouth. He doesn't say it nicely. He literally spat those words at Jesus. His heart hardened. And we don't have to go as far as the cross to see what pride and arrogance does. Where people snare at the things of God, blaspheme God, mock God, ridicule God. Where people think that they have become the gods of their own life. Where people declare an independence from God. A rebellious heart. The arrogance where people think that they have intellectual superior superiority even to God. And once a heart is arrogant, proud. And we see it in the church sadly as well as outside the church. The arrogance of some of some of us who preach the word. There's a particular preacher. Everyone thinks he's great, but I don't listen to him anymore. And the reason is simple. I listened to him once or twice, and I thought, why is he talking, why is he talking like that? Why is he so boastful? Why is he such a braggart? What gives him the right to speak like that? And there was something in me that just rebelled against everything this man said. So I cannot be blessed by him. So I don't bother with him. I'm, some people think he's a great preacher. I just think he's just an arrogant human being. Even behind the, the pulpit, you see a lot of the arrogance, the puffed up pride of life, the boasting. And there's something about arrogance and pride that God detests. We don't fully understand how much God hates pride. And I think the reason is that it must remind him of Satan. Who said, I will be like God. Why can't I be like God? Proverbs 21 verse 4. The Bible says, arrogance, superiority, and pride are the fruits of wickedness and the true definition of sin. 
you're looking for sin, it shows itself, its true definition is in arrogant superiority and pride. In Proverbs 16 verse 5, the wise king says, Every proud heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none of them will go unpunished. Two men so close to an eternity with God. Literally touching distance from an eternity with God. But one is so, so full of pride and arrogance that he misses the chance of an eternity with God. The number of things that people will miss just because they don't have that beautiful virtue of humility. Number four, what do we learn from these, this, this encounter? We learn how foundational the fear of the Lord is. As one robber, Mr. Arrogant and Proud, was spewing all the bile of arrogance and pride, another robber, two robbers, they've done the same thing. Killed the probably, you know, maimed, uh, brutalized people. But one of the other robbers, he turns to that robber, and he says to him, don't you fear God? And that struck me. That here is a robber. But he's saying, I'm not a good man. I'm an evil man. But there are lines that I can't cross. And he's saying to his compadre, to his friend, you have crossed the line. As terrible as we are, there are lines we don't cross. Don't you fear God. And maybe he should be saying that today. Saying that not just out there, but saying that even in the church. Because there is an irreverence that has come into the church. There is a familiarity that is bordering on contempt. There's a taking the things of God for granted. Don't you fear God? And it's not the fear of judgment and condemnation for us as Christians. That can be the lot of a non-Christian. So your fear of God is a God who's going to smash you to smithereens and deal with you. Our fear of God is a reverential fear. It's, 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 it's looking at God and we are in awe of God. We are overwhelmed by God's goodness and mercies. The Bible says in Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's foundational. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord, the reverential fear of, lo of the Lord, the, the, the appreciation of God, understanding of God, and it goes a bit more than respect. Even though respect is a, is a stop on the journey. It is just being so, so in awe of God. The Amplified Classic says, the reverent and worshipful fear of God is the beginning and the principal and choice part of knowledge. It's its starting point and its essence, the reverential fear of God. It's the foundation of everything. We can't go further if we don't have that fear of God. 
The truth is that you cannot walk in God's ways. You can't love God and you can't serve God if you don't fear him. If you don't have that reverential and worshipful fear of God. When he was speaking to the children of Israel and giving them instructions as to how they would relate to him. In Deuteronomy, the 12th, 10th chapter and the 12th verse. And I love the Amplified Classic of this scripture. He says, and now Israel, the Bible says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Could be saying that to you and I. This is what I require of you. But to reverent, but, but reverently to fear the Lord your God. That is to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your mind and heart and with your entire being. You can't do one without the other. It will be hollow. It will be empty. It will be a counterfeit. It will be dry if it doesn't have as a foundation the reverential and worshipful fear of God. Can someone say amen to that? And the fifth thing, and this, this is, these are the pictures now, that that incident, that account shows us, is arguably, in the Bible, one of the simplest and clearest pictures of mercy. You see, these guys deserved what they got. They had maimed and killed, maybe raped. They had destroyed lives, brought pain and suffering to others, instigated rebellion. They had, sowed, they had sown the seeds and the time of the harvest for their deeds had come. If their rap sheet was read, we would all come to the conclusion that they deserve what they got. They brought sorrow and pain and grief to the lives of others. They violently took other people's possessions and probably took lives in the process. And so they deserved what they got. But what a picture of mercy. That despite deserving it, at the last minute as one of them reached out, he was shown mercy. And the beautiful thing about mercy is that when you receive it, you know that I should have been judged for my actions. I'm sure you agree with me that if we're not all recipients of mercy, none of us would be here or watching online. And aren't we grateful that this is God's core nature? He's a merciful God. The prophet Micah says in Micah, the seventh chapter and the 18th verse, and you know, this is the kind of refrain that you get through the Bible. You know, it's almost like the, the, the writers of the Bible are just amazed at God's mercy. They just, it, it's beyond understanding. Who does this? That's, that's almost the phrase that, could go through the Bible. I mean, who behaves like this? Who does this? He says, Micah, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity 
and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his, of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Oh, Lord of mercy. I love that phrase. You know, it paints a picture of a God who gets excited to show mercy. He delights in it. And so, when my case is so bad, when what I have done is so despicable, it is just the worst. And when every judge and every human being would condemn me, if I turn to God with a repentant heart, God does the exact opposite because he delights, he gets excited to show mercy. Can you picture this? That what excites God is if a child of his who has gone so far, gone astray, done terrible things, turns back to him with repentance and a contrite heart, and God gets excited in heaven, this is a chance for me to show mercy. For me to hold in abeyance the sword of judgment and show mercy. If anyone here has received God's mercy, will you celebrate God for yourself? If you online, if you've received God's mercy, go and celebrate God for the mercy that you received. As Nehemiah was encouraging them in Nehemiah, the ninth chapter and the 31st verse, as he encouraged them about the God that, that, that they served, he says, Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. And don't we deserve that? For you are God, gracious and merciful. And following on from that, number six, it paints a picture of the grace of God. It's mind-blowing. It's actually... It actually does your head in. It is just mind-blowing. It, it, is, it is so, if you read the story and follow the story, it's, it's kind of those, one of those cliffhanger stories. Is it going, what's going to happen? It's, it, it's literally seconds. Within seconds from an eternity condemned, an eternity of separation from God. Seconds from a life in hell. That repentant thief cries out and is snatched from where Satan thought he had put him. Such a picture of grace. Totally unmerited favor. The only thing he did was to turn to God, to cry out, and to acknowledge God, Jesus as his Lord. The robber said, my Lord Jesus. That's the only thing you've got to do to receive grace and be saved. To turn with a repentant heart and acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and the rest is done. Such a beautiful picture of how we are saved by grace. None of us earned it. None of us is good enough. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God. But God reaches down to where we are and rescues us from an eternity of separation with God. You've heard me say it before, I say it again. 
that if God did nothing else for me, if he decided, Aguiruku, you've had enough, I will forever be eternally grateful that he saved me. That he has guaranteed an eternity with him. Not because I'm perfect, still stumbling along, but that's what grace has done. Paul says in Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 4 to 9, But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let that sink into our hearts. By grace you have been saved. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. By grace, unmerited favor. By grace you have been elected. And he goes on to say, And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were appointed to that high place by grace. We were taken from the lowest of places and appointed to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus by grace. That in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Day by day we see the exceeding riches of his grace. He shows us the exceeding riches of his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. No one can boast. It was a gift. Just wrapped up and given to you. All you've got to do to receive that grace that saves us is to do what the robber did. Turn to Jesus with a repentant heart and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. And you know, it is something that I wish the church fully understood, grace, that we're accepted. We don't have to earn it. It takes an undoing of, 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 of our way of thinking because we are, we are conditioned to feel we have to earn everything. We have to earn the love of our loved ones. We have to, we have to earn the, the admiration and the commendation of, of those that we work. We earn everything. And so sometimes we think we have to earn it with God. Sometimes we think it's our fasting and our praying and our giving um, that, that earns it with God. We give in a transactional way so that we can get something back. That's, that's, that's kindergarten. When you come to understand grace, you're doing it propelled by grace. You're not doing it for what you will get because you understand that I don't have to do anything to be accepted by God. He has chosen himself to accept me. And that's the end of the matter. Can someone say amen to that? That's why I love that picture that, that the writer of Hebrews paints for us. One of my favorite scriptures. How we approach this throne of grace. I'm so grateful that when I come to God, it is settled in my mind that I am approaching a throne of grace. Hebrews 4 verse 16. I'm approaching a throne where love is enthroned. That's the way the Passion Translation puts it. I approach this throne of grace. I don't come to a throne of condemnation. 
I don't come to a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace. What am I going to receive as I approach God? As you approach God, I am guaranteed that I am going to receive unmerited favor. Nothing else is dispensed from that throne. Every sword that is stretched out to touch my shoulder is a sword of grace. It is never the sword of judgment or the sword of condemnation. That is not your lot and my lot. That is not our father. He's a father of grace. I can come as messed up as I am with multiple mistakes I can come having done terrible things and I know that what I will receive at that throne is grace and as the Bible says I will receive grace and mercy to help me in my time of need it's settled and then lastly the picture of that crucifixion and what really wraps itself around the repentant robber is the love of God. You know God loves you. Do you know that? Do you really know that? God loves you. I don't think our, our minds can fully comprehend and may God just continue to give us revelation after revelation. Of his love for us. You know, I always tell you the story of my mother. Uh, my mother had an unconditional love for me. It made no sense. I could do no wrong with my mother. Absolutely not. Shola used to say that when I walk into a room, my mother's face lights up. And then Shola said to me, her eyes now rest on you. And then they just follow you everywhere you're going. It's a very interesting relationship we had. She never called me by my name. She had a pet name for me. And when I came out of that, and I now met the real thing in an unconditional love of God, I understood it because of what I had received. The challenge is that some of us have not received any love from those who should have loved us, and it has created an obstacle to understanding what unconditional love is. And I pray that God will release us from the burdens of our past and the pains of our past so that we can truly open ourselves to this unconditional love of God. I mean, think about it. It's unconditional. You don't, you don't have to do anything for it. Even the best of marriage relationships, the, the love has certain conditions. Just that in some cases, the conditions are high. In other cases, they are not so high. I mean, think about great husband and wife, but the wife keeps annoying the husband, irritating the husband, keeps doing everything that the husband says she shouldn't do. Everything wrong. How many know that no matter how much the husband loves the wife, there's going to be an issue? How many agree with me? Yeah. But with God, it's unconditional. Unconditional. Don't have to earn it. He just loves you. Father, we just thank you. I want to pray for God's love to wrap, wrap it, him, for God to wrap his arms around you in his love. I want to pray especially um, for people who have had fathers or father figures um, 
who have hurt them and have acted in a way that has created an obstacle to receiving the love of God. I, I feel led specifically to pray for that. And so maybe if you fall into that category and you're in this auditorium or you're online, um, God wants to lift that burden. He wants to erase the pain that is an obstacle to you fully receiving the love of God, wherever you are. If you just open up your heart, I want to trust the Spirit of God to do a quick work this morning and release you. Heavenly Father, just want to thank you. Go on, open up your heart if you're that person. Um, you know yourself. You know you've struggled because a father or father figure sometimes is even in the church where you've been abused in the church, even if it's not physically, but you've been manipulated and abused mentally. And as a result, you just can't trust father figures or, or, or your father has let you down and you just can't. You, it's, it's scarred you and, and hampers your trust of your heavenly father. Uh, we want to ask the Spirit of God to remove that obstacle so that you can really receive this unconditional love that is your portion. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and bless you. But if you're in the auditorium and that's you, will you just place your hand on your heart? Go and place your hand on your heart if you're here. At home, do the same. Wherever you're watching, do the same. We just want to pray for the Spirit of God to do a quick work, a quick surgery in hearts. Go on wherever you are or in this auditorium. Father, we just want to thank you and bless you, O oh God. We learn lessons, Heavenly Father, from these two robbers. We marvel, O oh God, at your grace and your mercy. We are grateful, Father, for how low you came, Jesus, to pick us up. We are so thankful for the authenticity of your word. Your word is settled forever. And Father, especially today, as we come to this end, O oh God, we just receive your love. We receive a fresh outpouring of it. We receive a revelation in our minds of it. And Father, for those who have their hands on their hearts, the symbolic, O oh God, of particular circumstances that have created obstacles, a stumbling block on this journey, Heavenly Father, to receiving your love. We ask Holy Spirit you will come and do a work in their hearts. That you will lift that burden. That you will heal that wound in the way that only you can. That your daughter or your son is released from the bondage of the past so that they can fully embrace the future. And I want to affirm you as a son of God. I want to affirm every guy who's here and let you know your father in heaven says he loves you. Isn't it instructive, all of you, that God affirmed Jesus as his beloved son before Jesus did any of the works. As Jesus came up from the baptism, before he had started his ministry, the message from heaven was clear. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It was to send us a message that it's not the works that commended Jesus to God. God had chosen him as his beloved son before the works. And so my brother, you don't have to earn it with God. My sister, you don't have to earn it with God. He just loves you. You are the apple of his eye. 
You are precious to him. He will do anything for you. He will even substitute human, humans for you, he says. That's how precious you are to him. Father, we just thank you and we bless you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. And Father, if there's, we're grateful for the gift of salvation. And so if there's anyone who is watching online, you haven't received that gift of salvation, or you're here and you haven't settled this matter of salvation, we are saved by grace. What a chance for you to receive that gift as you reflect on these two robbers who ended up in two different places. One in paradise on that day with seconds to spare and one in an eternity separated from God in a place that was not designed for any one of us but was designed as a holding place for Satan and his own disciples. And so if there's anyone here who says, I want to receive that gift of salvation, just open your heart and make a confession with your mouth. Believe in every word that you say. It's as simple as that. That's grace. That the price has been paid. Because there is a price. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. There is a price for sin. But you don't have to worry about it. He paid that price for you. Will you receive that gift of salvation? If you will, say after me, Heavenly Father, I open up my heart and today I receive your son Jesus into my heart and into my life. I receive him as my gift of salvation. And Father, I make a commitment to you to turn away from anything that is displeasing to you, to live a life that is pleasing to you, Heavenly Father. Give me the grace to do so, O oh God. And by my confession, I now know that I am a child of yours, a part of your family, born again today into your family. Thank you for receiving me in Jesus' name. And together we all say with them, Amen and Amen.